You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you'll want to listen on to find out what he has to say about people buying the wrong property and what you can and cannot do when renovating. The key thing that I unfortunately see is people just buying the wrong property for them. It might be the right property for somebody else, but not doing their homework enough We're talking about people in Sydney now investing multiple millions of dollars. If you were going to put $2 million in shares, you'd do a little bit of homework about what you were doing. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of Tom Wills, Director and Principal Architect of TW Architects, who specialise in residential architectural and interior design services. Now, with over 20 years' experience, Tom has a passion for high-quality architecture and design and has worked for clients who want to create their perfect home as well as small developers who buy property to renovate and flip. I've had many conversations with Tom over the years about the due diligence that people undertake before buying a renovator's delight, and I've often been surprised at the naivety of people who buy without really knowing what they are letting themselves in for. We want to find out what should renovators look for before buying a doer-upper. Welcome, Tom. Veronica, thank you for having me. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate you being here. Thanks, Chris. You're our first architect on the show as well. And I know Veronica and I have been wanting to get someone in, so we're very excited. A lot of people buy property and they then think that they can then just go renovate it. Do many people come to you before they actually buy the property? Unfortunately not. And that's probably one of the key things that we'd like to get out there is that uh, we're there to help people, particularly before they buy, to understand what they possibly can and can't do. I'm constantly surprised at the risk people will take in spending a lot of money securing a property in Sydney Mm -hmm. without really understanding what are the do's and don'ts, particularly in sensitive council areas, perhaps uh, heritage conservation areas, where there are going to be very severe limitations on what you can and can't do. So people investing a lot of money and not doing their homework is uh, unfortunate, but more often the case than not. I guess in Sydney, what what are some of these areas in terms of councils that are probably more restrictive than other councils? Just to give people a bit of an idea. So all councils, one of the problems we have in Sydney is is all councils are their own little kingdom and they all like to do things how they want to do them. And one of the uh, things that the state government has been trying to do, like it or not, is to simplify this. We have uh, over 40 councils in Sydney, all of them with different rules and regulations. So if you're looking to purchase in an area that you may not be familiar with, it may have quite different rules to one that you currently live in, for example. Mm-hmm. So so the rules of one council do not necessarily apply to the other. So when we're talking about uh, problematic areas, the first thing to always understand is, are you in a heritage conservation area? Yep. As soon as you're in one of those areas, and they are all over Sydney, but principally in, in the inner city suburbs, 
there's a whole set of different rules. Mm -hmm. There's a whole set of pathways for development that you can and can't take. And there's a whole different set of criteria as to what may or may not be possible. We'd like to think that when we buy a house, that we can develop it how we'd like to, to build our dream home. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, there's a lot of other people with their fingers in the pie who are going to uh, tell us what we can and can't do. I mean, that just reminded me of a conversation I had with a, a client a few years ago and we're at a cafe in the eastern suburbs and he got a phone call. He said, I've just got to answer this. And I kind of was a little bit eavesdropping on the call, I have to admit. And <laughs> he's like, no, 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 we can't. We're not going to allow that to happen. Uh, well, let's, well, the meeting's next week and et cetera. And he ended the call and he said, oh, that's our that's our little um, community kind of property hub. You know, if anyone lodges a development application, we all meet up and we all appeal it. And so that was involved clues and it just showed the power of not only the council but the collective community to stop people changing. Yep, that's right. And there are there are numerous uh, communities like that, not just in heritage conservation areas, certainly plenty of them up, by, I know, on the northern beaches, yeah. uh, but also very much so in places like Paddington where different people have different ideas on what is heritage and what should and shouldn't stay, which is a very interesting uh, question. So what might appeal to, to one person might be the, uh, the worst possible scenario for another. And it's important to understand with these issues that they're constantly changing and that mostly they're subjective. And this is a real issue for people because mm. most of the time it's about someone else's opinion and we may or not uh, agree with that. Sometimes I hate people. <laughs> I just think <laughs> because it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we've talked to strata experts in the show. I mean, we've uh, Rena, Rena Van Aas, for instance, strata manager, we spoke to. How to get stratas uh, to agree. You can't. Well, <laughs> but a lot of people, we talked about the misconceptions around strata as well. And a lot of people don't want to buy into strata because they feel that they don't want other people controlling what they can and can't do. But what people often don't realise when they're buying a Torrens title house is that people in a less structured organisational way are still going to have an impact and it's less overt. And so, you know, trying to discover whether you've got those sort of problematic neighbours um, that you're going to be dealing with ahead of time. And I'm not sure even you can answer this, Tom, because how do you find out whether your neighbours are going to be a problem? I and mean, the council is one thing. I mean, you as an architect obviously can give guidance as to what is a likely outcome in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, the renovation potential for property. But we've just opened another can of worms here. Is there, is there mm, some neighbors, sort of, yeah. is there a way, is, <laughs> is there a, some sort of register for these community organisations? Uh, yeah, a bad neighbour register. Wouldn't it be great? Yeah, let's start one. <laughs> Unfortunately, I suppose the simple answer is no, of course you can't. And you generally find often in areas uh, such as we deal a lot in, in sort of the inner, inner west area, and most neighbours are, are very nice and, and very social as soon as you put that little sign out the front of your house um, <laughs> and then all bets are off. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose simplistically uh, it's needed to understand that most people probably are afraid of change yeah. and they're just wanting to make sure that they protect their own asset and their own family and their own livelihood. But uh, simplistically, I suppose most people are very conservative and I'd probably put that down to the, to the councils as well. They don't like change. It's easy to say no to something mm -hmm. and it's much harder to say yes. So I generally say that you should uh, attack it with, with a position that, that knows the default answer and that you've got to push the case for yes um, with all of these things. 
also with your neighbours. Not mm. only do we not like change, but we're also hypocrites, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, if mm. I want to renovate my property or add a third bedroom or build out the back, that's fine. But if the neighbour's doing it, then yeah. we don't want that to yeah, happen. Yeah, look, so. we, we see this all the time. We had a fairly recent one that uh, uh, was going through the Land Environment Court and we're all standing out the front of the properties and the neighbour um, who is a lawyer, um, certain, certain neighbours, different professions, um, I could suggest that there's a pattern. Um, but but uh, <laughs> but this uh, this particular neighbour uh, was, uh, you know, violently ob- objecting to our proposal. Um, we were looking for a single-storey addition to a dwelling. He had a four-storey addition. Yeah. So, uh, yes, a- as you rightly point out, What's not good everybody's for the goose wasn't exactly good for not the everybody's <laughs> equal exactly so on that though i mean there's obviously a process and people are buying there's certain things that you can check out before you buy a property and then Absolutely. there's, there's a, and you mentioned the word risk earlier and that's something i do want to we do want to find out more about what the risks are now there are known risks or risks that can be quite easily discovered and understood and there are those like the neighbor situation which is yet to be determined but obviously if you've got a good case for a potential renovation in terms of council's eyes, then the risk of the neighbours having negative impact is diminished, correct? Yes, and uh, I agree that there's there's different types of risk. There's there's risks that we can quantify or we can use our experience to give good advice on. Some classic ones, for example, are can I get parking or not? People make assumptions that, that that's going to be a, an easy thing to do. Well, not necessarily. So so we can use our experience to, to, to give a likelihood of, of what's going to be achievable just based on uh, uh, past experience and the particular council controls. But there's other ones that are a little bit harder and less tangible, such as what part of an old building might need to be kept. Mm. And that's why it's important, in my opinion, uh, if you're thinking of purchasing a property to understand these risks. So what we're really trying to help people with is to give them enough information to understand the risk so that they can make an informed decision. Part of the the problem that I think is out there is people often are, are willing to make multi-million dollar decisions without doing almost any homework yeah. and without really uh, informing themselves of the risk. If you know the risk, then you can assess whether it's one euro willing to take or not. If you don't know the risk, then it can be a nasty surprise later. And that's one of the things, unfortunately, we do see is that people make assumptions on what what can happen and then find out later on that it can't. And a simple conversation with somebody might have given them the understanding of those risks. Yeah. I mean, that's a trend we've seen a lot through our episodes is that, you know, we don't want to know what we don't know. Like we purposely Mm. self-sabotage. It's easy to pick up a phone, call an architect, ask an architect. But if that architect does say, well, hang on a sec, you're not going to be able to convert that to a three bedroom you actually self-sabotage yourself and don't make the phone call. I mean, precedence, you were talking there around a four-storey, you just wanted to build a two-storey. It sounds pretty obviously like you should. If you're walking down a street and there's quite a lot of houses similar to what you own and they've gone up two levels, is that a sure sign that you're 100% going to get proved? Absolutely not. The thing to understand about councils and planning and, and, and these types of uh, regulations is Every case is uh, supposed to be considered on its merit. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, a classic example might be two identical houses, one on one side of the street, one on the other side of the street. And a renovation has happened uh, to one of them and it's got a nice new two-storey addition out the back and, and the owners are very happy and the, the, the owner across the street thinks, oh, no problems, it's the same house, it's uh, in the same street, I'll be able to do the same thing. But because it's on the opposite side of 
the street, the orientation is different. So a second story might cause overshadowing to the neighbour, for example, and it may then not be permitted. So the important thing to do is to understand that, that every single project, every site is different. It's like us as human beings. None of us are identical. Mm. And that, that the individuality of the site and the project is the key issue here. And councils obviously can change over time. So like if they got that approved five years ago and they did it five years ago, that doesn't mean that in 2019 that the council is going to approve it. Absolutely. So planning rules are constantly changing. Mm. And it's important also uh, to understand not just changes to rules, but also changes to how they're interpreted because uh, councils will change that over time. And at one period of time, they might read a rule one way and another time might read it another way, which might have very significant impact on what you can and can't do. For example, we've just had several councils merge, particularly in the inner city suburbs. Uh, we deal a lot with the new Inner West Council. And one of the interpretations for the control of overshadowing uh, for one council is different to another. Um, and they're trying to work out, well, whose are we going to take? Mm. Which one is going to be the new rule? So it's, it's very uncertain at the moment. And that's one of the other problems for people is the uncertainty. And having somebody who you can talk to who's, if you like, at the coalface of that, who's trying to understand uh, how councils are thinking about things and, and where they're going, what direction are they going in, is very important. Mm. Have you come across many people who actually, I mean, look, it's one thing buying a home to live in and assuming you're going to get everything that you want and we've had many, many clients. In fact, I often talk to you, Tom, prior to, to recommending a property to a client because we want to make sure that any assumptions that are being made or any wishful thinking that is being made has some sort of basis of possibility. But then there's the people that buy to renovate to sell. So do you come across a lot of people that are doing that for their first time? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who've... Uh seen what's happening in the property market and uh, watch certain TV shows um, <laughs> that unfortunately give them a very misleading understanding of, of what's involved in the process, what the costs are, mm. what the time factors are, what the risks are. And you do see some people get themselves into a lot of trouble. People not understanding the process, not understanding the rules. We unfortunately do get quite regular phone calls from people saying, oh, I've just done some work and now the council's told me I shouldn't have. So people not really understanding the process, the timeframes, the money, the risks, uh, all of which in my opinion could be relatively simply dealt with and uh, understood and a plan of action put in, if you like, to, to approach these things logically. So some people approaching things from a uh, an investor developer point of view are very well organized. It's usually the people like you say who haven't done it before who uh, get themselves into trouble because they just don't understand the risk. They think it's easy. Oh, here's money to be made. Everybody's doing it. I'm going to, you know, off, off I go and I'm going to be making 25% the day I finish. Uh, and that's a risk. One of the things I, I sort of remember clearly is when I first started work, the rule of thumb when you bought a property was that you would get your money back after a renovation within around five or seven years, something like that. The expectation of a lot of people today is that you finish a renovation and not only have you got your money back, but you've made a profit. Mm. So expectations from people have changed, rightly or wrongly, and sometimes people get caught out. 
And there are a lot of businesses out there, you know, pushing that idea that, you know, you can renovate and you can add, you know, $2 for every dollar you spend. And I think, you know, there's obviously certain systems that work here, the type of property they buy, how much structural work is required, you know, where they're buying it, you know, the expectations of the finishes and all that sort of thing. And a lot of what I see that that has been the outcome of people going through a lot of those courses is pretty crap renos, depending on where they are, really difficult to sell because they're yeah. just awful. Look, I, I think a lot of people are worried about the the issue of overcapitalization. I probably see a lot of uh, what I call undercapitalization, mm, yeah, where right. people have bought a very expensive property. Yep. Everything is in in places like Sydney, um, and they've spent money renovating it. Mm. But maybe they've missed the mark in not understanding what the market's going to be looking for, and they've looked yep. to save money because they've needed to, which is understandable. Mm. But then perhaps the property isn't presenting like it should be because it's not really fitting the expectations of the market. So when yep. we're talking to people who are developing properties, it's really important that uh, they're clear in understanding the expectations of the market that they're going to sell to. I think in Sydney, there's an unfortunate propensity to try and be all things to all people. And that does often generate quite boring and safe (laughs) results. Um, But I think people who understand who they're pitching to in the market do a lot better in those areas and people have a clear vision for what they want to do rather than maybe just following fashion. I mean, that's a huge, huge point. So if you're going to do a renovation on a house and you live in an area that's bought by families and you build something without a bath or you build something mm. with lots of stairs and bad floor plan or something like that that suits you but doesn't suit the market, it's <laughs> you're really shooting yourself in the foot. Well, they think adding a bedroom is the answer. Oh, I just I make it a four-bedroom house and, and it's got a tiny living area. Veronica, <laughs> that's part of the way our real estate market works. Mm. If you if you look at the market, it's a it's a four three two or a, a three three one. And it's how people talk in the market. It's it's uh, and most uh, agents are uh, about the number of bedrooms, not necessarily the quality of space. And one of the things that we often are trying to impress on people is okay, you might get five bedrooms in the house, but can the house support Mm. the number Mm. of people that five bedrooms uh, entails? Do you have enough living space? Do you have a variety of living space, enough outdoor space, Mm. et cetera, et cetera? So these these issues are are things that are constantly developing in our market as we become more sophisticated and as we become more experienced in, in these things. And I think you see the properties that do well versus the properties that don't. I'm sure, Veronica, you've seen many properties that you seem to walk into every two or three years. They're up on the market again. Mm. Why are they up on the market again? Mm. Well, clearly they're not uh, fulfilling the Easy right to need. Live in. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. 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 It's very true. I mean, floor plan is a big, big, big determinant of capital growth. And, you know, we've got a whole raft of characteristics that we look for and we score in our business. And so we're quite scientific about this. And and floor plan is obviously very important. And a lot of it's very intangible. You know, the balance and the flow and the way light comes in and the flexibility of spaces. And as design evolves and new practices come in or new approaches, I guess, come into play, we see changes in the way that we live as well. And certainly when you're in an area where there's lots of little kids, for instance, everybody just wants one living area. And then those kids start going to school and all of a sudden everybody wants two living areas. And so I guess (laughs) talking to an architect as well, same with us, when we're sitting with our clients and we say, right, okay, this is where you are now. How long do you think you want to be in this house for? Because this house has to serve you 
for that period of time. And I'm sure you're having exactly the same conversations with your clients. Yep. And this is the benefit of getting guidance because it's A, so expensive to buy the property, but B, you'll get to this, so expensive to renovate. Yes, it is. Look, you're absolutely right. The, the key thing we like to understand from people is the whys of things. Why are you doing this? What's its purpose? There's factual or like you say, numerical things that, that might apply to a property, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, things we'd like to have. But really at the end of the day, the intangibles are, are sometimes the more critical mm. things. Why do we like certain things and not others? What is appealing about a property? Simply put, it's not just the number of spaces mm. or, or we'd have all identical houses. It's how they're arranged and what appeals to some people and not others. So the first questions that we're always interested in understanding from people is why and for how long? Because what we're trying to identify is the real issues for their lifestyle. These uh, are homes for people. It's, it's where they live. It's probably the most important place in their life. And hopefully it's somewhere that they are going to able to, to grow and flourish. So what are the things that are really important to them? And I ask all of the people that we work with to, to really to spend some time thinking about what those things are. I've had a recent client who used to be a professional bike rider. He's got 14 or 15 push bikes. He wants a little workshop where he can watch the Tour de France and muck around with his bikes. If I'm able to provide that for him, he'll be happy. If we don't and we, we ignore his real passion, then uh, of course he won't be. Another client, lady works in the city, says that all she wants to do at the end of the day, sit in the bath, glass of wine, look at the beautiful view. We can provide that to her. She's going to feel right. enriched, rewarded and satisfied, maybe at the expense of other things that she'd be willing to sacrifice. So you're looking to see what pushes people's buttons and to understand the individuality of each client. And I suppose that's one of the differences between a house and a home, if you like, that often we're buying other people's houses, yeah? Mm. They're not our own. And how do we then make them our own? And that's something that we're very interested in, in helping people with. And sometimes, unfortunately, with the market the way it often is, people are feeling pressured to maybe buy property that isn't really going to, to fit their lifestyle and yeah. their needs and their wants. And, you know, the, the square peg in the round hole mm. scenario where this might not be the correct property for them. And, and we unfortunately do see that where you see clients who buy properties that just are never going to satisfy mm. what they want. And of course, two or three years later, they have to sell and move on. Well, that's right. They've t they've, the story they've told themselves is that we'll buy it to get in the market because the market's booming mm. and we need something because we need to be in the market. And at some point when we need it, we'll upgrade into the new property and Unfortunately, the property they want is actually a better asset that's actually growing at a faster rate and their property starts to lag. And that gap that was maybe 300000 is actually growing. And then when you add in the costs of buying, the stamp duty, the selling costs, even the ability to do it, it's sometimes it's what they've missed the boat. So they may have been better not to buy in that area, maybe buy in a closer area and maybe got the house that suits them or stretched. You know? <laughs> well, the elephant is rampant. 
when it comes to <laughs> buying your own home, and particularly if you are wedded to a certain area. And look, Tom's office is actually directly across the road from mine in Balmain, and Balmain Peninsula is one of these classic areas where people will make all these crazy compromises to stay on the peninsula. It's like they've got absolute blinkers on us. There is, and I kept saying, there is life off the peninsula. <laughs> I, I did it myself. I migrated two and a half years ago. I'm here to tell you I'm enjoying life off the peninsula. The, but the thing is people will make all sorts of compromises in panic because there's a supply issue in that area. And then when they do buy something, it's got massive limitations in terms of the potential of, of renovation. And it's not just Balmain though. I come across this with a lot of people in a lot of areas, particularly in these inner areas, is they've got a home thinking it's got longer legs than it really does, they're then under pressure to either renovate it or sell a move. They go into this stage of limbo. It can last for years. And I tell you, limbo is no place to live. But couples will come to us often after having deliberated and fought about it and struggled with this idea of what to do for about, you know, four or five years often. And I'm sure, Tom, it's the same for you. The problem is the cost of selling and then buying again, you know, you've got 5% of the purchase price, add that on top because that's your cost of buying. 3% of your selling price is your cost of selling, right? So there's a, quite a massive transaction cost to buy another home. And then there's all that uncertainty around moving areas and all the rest of it. So then they go down the path of thinking, I know I'll turn my current home into what I want. And there's another whole series of issues that they're going to have, aren't they, Tom? I mean, you're nodding yeah. at me, so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So this is a increasingly common scenario. Maybe five or ten, ten years ago, you were seeing people more consistently trade up, if you like, but with the increasing property prices and stamp duty and moving costs and all of these sorts of issues. And as you point out, a lot of people feeling settled in an area and not wanting to move you start to get these pressures. Yes, you do. And we see a lot of people needing to make decisions about their lifestyle. It's what it's really about. So what I always am encouraging people to, to, to think about is not just what's your lifestyle now, but what's your lifestyle going to be in five or 10 years? As you point out, things change. We see people at many key points in their life. We see Sometimes first home buyers, they're excited. It's their first purchase. What can we do? We see a classic, uh, we're about to have a baby. We need another bedroom. Amazing how many times we're trying to get renovations done within that nine-month period. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, of course, we see uh, people where with the family sort of maybe settle. Kids are starting to go to school. How's this going to you know, pay out for us over the, the next few years while the kids are at school. And then, of course, very importantly now as uh, society changes a bit, kids getting older and staying at home longer. So how can a house that might have had a family in it mm. now have four or five adults in it? Yeah. And how does a house adapt and change to that? So the changing scenario and the ability of a house to change is very important, but understanding its limitations is very important. I think one of the the problems that we're facing in, in Sydney and in Australia in general is probably a, a continued expectation that more is better. So, mm. so people want a bigger house and they want more and that's their desire rather than a quality of space that we might see perhaps uh, elsewhere, maybe even in, in, in this country in, in certain areas, in inner city suburbs where people are willing to compromise on space um, for uh, convenience and 
commuting issues and schools and all of these sorts of infrastructure uh, issues that we're talking about uh, in general at the moment about roads and traffic and public transport and all these sorts of things. Where we live and how we live is is very important uh, there. You point out that uh, my office is in Balmain. I live in Balmain. That's for a very particular reason. I don't like commuting. Um, <laughs> so I've deliberately chosen to do that. And I think we're going to see more and more of people choosing uh, uh, lifestyle issues perhaps over other issues. Uh, yes, we'd all love a large yeah. house with a big backyard, but um, if that's a priority, fine. As you mm. point out, maybe you should move. Yeah. If not, um, maybe you need to be ta- making those conscious choices. That's a really big point as well. I mean, there is a shifting, I believe, and it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on a lot of younger generation are moving to more of a minimal kind of less is more mentality and they're not kind of getting overexcited about bigger is better or more is better. And and living is one of those things, you know, they're getting more comfortable saying, well, I'm happy to live in a smaller space, but I'm happy to make it my space. I don't need to get that big house. You know? Look, I think you're absolutely right. There's no question that there's a generational change happening. It's probably because uh, a lot of people are from from maybe uh, the slightly older generations grew up with that sub- sort of suburban lifestyle and yep. the expectations of space uh, for the kids to kick the footy in the backyard or whatever it might be. But now with the the, the pressures uh, are on property um, and the, the, the lifestyle choices, if you like, um, of younger people wanting to enjoy that rather than the expense of the, the, the large mortgage in the suburbs, um, I think there's a definite shift from that. I think the other thing that will be interesting to see is, is how the property market um, uh, chooses to address those issues. We haven't really seen yet... Um, more share style developments. It's yep. still really uh, individual apartments, but I think what will happen is people will be willing to have, you know, a relatively small space, but they they share some other communal yep. uh, spaces in developments, um, and and it'll be interesting to see how that develops. the The key will be what happens maybe when um, the millennials uh, have have two kids and where yeah. do they live and how, what happens then? <laughs> well, that's always the problem, right? You know, it's the, everything. So I'm happy to rent. I'm happy to share mm. with some friends. I'm happy to travel or go Airbnb. And then when you have kids, it's like that all goes out the window. We need a house and we need security and we need stability and we want home ownership. And that's, you know, from an investor's point of view, if you target them, you know that there's always going to be a growing demographic as the population rises that are going to want a home to live in. And so if you've got something that suits them, it doesn't. you don't worry about the singles or the couples or the divorcees. You know that you're going to have all these home buyers wanting it long term. You will, of course. Um, I think the interesting thing is, is how that generation uh, will define its needs. Um, so, so will it think it needs a, a five-bedroom, four-bathroom home with triple garage? I doubt that very much. I mean, we, we prioritise convenience, right? So, you know, the four-bedroom outer suburb, that's a Saturday doing the lawns, it's maintenance, it's painting, it's a 45 minutes, an hour and a half commute each day. Um, yeah, and then you weigh that up to an option in the city, living in a smaller space and find it easy. I think it's a bit of a no-brainer for a lot of young people. Absolutely, but I think the key is that uh, that those uh, uh, smaller spaces need to be served by a a enjoyable and and um, 
well-developed structure around that. So if you don't have uh, somewhere to, to, to kick the footy and, or walk the dog, um, uh, there needs to be somewhere close to you to do that. Um, um, so, so how is the infrastructure around you s- sorted? So when looking to buy a property or to live in an area, why are people choosing certain areas? And I'd suggest that it's, it's more often than not, not because of the property per se, although that's important, it's about the infrastructure around that. It's about yep, the transport definitely. that's available. It's about the lifestyle, the mm. cafe culture or whatever you want to, to, to talk about that. Um, um, but it's also about are there parks to walk parks. around? Can I get into nature yep. quite easily? Uh, do I want to be here? Am I, am I comfortable with, with these other areas? And now that's very much um, a lifestyle uh, option that's obviously been around for, for, for a very long time. This suburban lifestyle is actually a, a relatively modern uh, uh, thing. It's only existed since the motor car's been around. Mm. Um, and, and I think what we're seeing now is, is that's probably reached its full expansion. Um, now in Sydney, we're continuing to do that, but um, I think we're seeing a contraction, if you like, of that. People obviously moving back into inner city areas. And the areas that do well are the areas that... Um, are well supported by these other spaces. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I, I do live in in a suburb that has an awful lot of parks and and outdoor areas. So I'm willing to sacrifice not having my own large outdoor area because I've got the the benefit of enjoying uh, uh, one that's also social with with my neighbours. Yeah, you just touched on um, one little point there around the outer suburbs of Sydney and, you know, what they're building out there, house and land packages and, you know, the quality of that type of stock on the market and long-term we're moving back to the city. Now, what's your thoughts on a lot of the development that happens, you know, in the fringes of cities uh, and the quality and the the, the architectural design of them? Look, I think like a lot of things, it's very mixed. Um, So there's some fantastic stuff uh, happening out there. There's uh, some medium density things happening. There's some higher density things happening. And, um, you know, if if somebody does want, you know, 800 square metres in a five-bedroom house, I suppose at the end of the day there's there's nothing wrong with that. I don't but, even think those new developments offer that anymore. No, no, it's yeah. half that. <laughs> well, like yeah. three, yeah. 350s. Uh, yeah, and that's an interesting thing. But you've still got thing. the five-bedroom, three-living area, a home with, cinema, with a, triple with a garage. Fence be- with a paling <laughs> fence between you and your neighbour, yeah. which is which is interesting. And, and obviously there is a desire for that because um, developers wouldn't provide it if there wasn't the market for it. Um, but I think that over time that will change um, and that you are seeing some better quality developments um, in hubs. Um, Sometimes it's not as well done as maybe it could be and sometimes it is. But there are uh, developments clearly around transportation hubs, that's very important, Mm -hmm. but also uh, areas that are are, are serviced by things that maybe in the past, such as, you know, Creek walkways and and yep. and parklands, all of a sudden bike paths, uh, running tracks, all of these yeah. sorts of things. Um, you know, near me is, is the Bay Run. Now that's a fantastically popular uh, place for people to do exercise. I'd say fifteen years ago, there nobody was, knew nobody it. knew it was there. So <laughs> it's so, funny. so so then, how these things develop. Yeah, yeah, and then the agents start using it as a selling pitch. Yeah, selling pitch. Um, and the Cooks River Cyclery, cycle, cyclery, yeah. is that what you say? <laughs> uh, you know, that's of recent years become. So something maybe ten that's years really ago, popular. that wasn't a desirable place to mm. go and 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 mm. and and be. Um, but but as we see these things become more important, more vital to to how we live, I think that's what's going to happen. So so going back to 
people and and purchasing i think that that clear understanding of what you want and why you want it and the longer term outlook for you are you going to be happy in a smaller place or do you need more space um uh, is very important and an area that's going to support that is is, is really vital i love i love the beach um, and I get to the beach quite regularly, hopefully two, maybe even three times a week. I live in Balmain. Well, that's not near the beach. Well, it is with a cross-city tunnel. Mm-hmm. So I'm prepared to have that small commute, 20, 25 minutes yep. sometimes uh, at the most, to get to the beach rather than live at the beach because, well, at the end of the day, I can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so so understanding how you can work within those uh, restraints is, I think, really important, understanding your lifestyle uh, objectives. You know, there are a lot of movements... Know, like the small house movement or was it tiny house movement? Mm, yeah. And you mentioned earlier, Tom, that people watch these shows and often get an unrealistic expectation in terms of what it's going to cost to renovate and certainly the time constraints as well. And these shows are sponsored by by suppliers. So, of course, you know, their budgets are going mm. to be um, very, very different to someone who's actually mm. doing the renovation themselves. But how how do you think this is all impacting on the actual design well, I think you see things uh, uh, like those shows on on television, um, and uh, in some ways, I think that they their primary objective is is to promote something that uh, that sells, yeah, um, be it the, the products or or at the end of the day, the property. the 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 aim of the show mm. is to make the most money, yeah. Um, um, and so, how do people do that? Um, I'd suggest sometimes it's um, it's uh, uh, Quantity over quality, um, and it's it's a little bit of of wow and bling um, that attracts people. Yeah, so so on those shows, you you don't generally see much of a conversation about the quality of the design, the organisation of the spaces. It's really about the dressing of it, the decoration of it, and whether it's you know hipster industry style or whether it's you yeah. know Tuscan or whatever the yeah. the yeah. fashion might be. Fashions come and go, mm. um, um, and uh, whether we like it or not, when we're designing a property, it will have an element of fashion in it. When we buy uh, a shirt or a suit, uh, it, it will be from its period. I yeah. think the thing is, if it's if it's clearly, thoughtfully, and well designed, no matter what its fashion or what its period, it will be of quality. That fashion might might go in and out now and then, and we see like in like in clothes, houses come in and out of fashion or the styles of houses and the different styles of houses appeal to different people. Um, there's, you know, most people are talking about modern architecture. We probably want to remind people that modern architecture is now a hundred years old. Um, so, so what a lot of people think of modern well, clearly isn't. Um, so, so how, how are these things changing? Um, I, I think that those, Sorts of shows uh, have been positive in that they are educating people, maybe not in a, a particularly uh, broad way, and and but but still people are interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the more educated people become about uh, architecture and 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 buildings, from, from my point of view, the better. It's an interesting thing uh, that um, we all live and work and 
play in buildings. We all experience buildings all of the time. Yeah. Most of us spend most mm. of our lives in buildings. Mm. But the amount of education we have about how they work, what they do, um, is really very limited. We don't learn anything about it at school. Um, we learn yep. lots of other things. Yeah. Um, so it's quite interesting um, from my point of view as an architect um, to understand how people experience uh, buildings and, and, and we learn a lot of that through, through architecture. But, but the general public learning more about that, I think, is a very positive thing. Some societies are very highly educated in, in, in these yep. things. Some societies are very poorly educated in these and things. What are, what are some of the decisions you think we might make differently when buying property if, as a society, we were better educated about these things? I think ultimately, uh, from my point of view, it's it's quality over quantity. I think that uh, uh, Australia and Australians still are in a little bit of the more is better mentality. Um, I think we're seeing that shift, um, but it takes time for these things to shift. We've seen it, for example, in cars. I mean, Ford and Holden don't make six and eight, you know, uh, cylinder cars in Australia anymore. Mm. Is the same going to happen for mm. property? Are we going to lose the V8 uh, project home? I think we are. <laughs> um, um, and and so people are more inclined, I think, to to look for quality over quantity um, and to understand that the the richness in their life doesn't necessarily have to come from more. If you look at all of the studies that have been done and we hear it time and time again, where are the happiest people? How do they live, et cetera, mm. et cetera? Um, and particularly, obviously, countries that people like to hold up like Denmark, et cetera. Most people are living in sort of two-bedroom mm. apartments, apartments over yeah. there. This is families. Um, um, yeah. And, and um, you're riding their bike and playing in the park and <clears throat> using the local facilities um, and having community engagement. Bad to say that. Yeah. That's the big thing, isn't it? Community. Mm. I you mean, know, with the design, when because I think this is a bit of a learning when people own property, they put off the renovation for years and years and years. And a client a few years ago um, had lived in the property for 20 years. The kids had grown all the way up. And then... They're just finally renovating it. And he says, oh, you know, we've done the renovation. We should have done it years ago. And I'm, well, yeah, you did. You lived in this property for 20 years, you know, and you're finally doing it. I think a lot of time with people with property as well, they don't speak to architects or early enough because they think they've got all the ideas. They think they've watched all the shows. And then you would come in, I imagine, and then blow their mind a little bit sometimes. Is that what happens? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> generally speaking, they're thinking, oh, yeah, we'll do this, we'll do that. But then you come in and say, well, have you thought about this? Yeah. And yeah. look, that's the role of of of, of uh, architects and, and and other people inv involved in in uh, in this industry is is to help people understand what what could happen. Um, one of the things that that we do at the beginning of of almost every project is help people understand their options. So they uh, might come to us thinking that this is what I want to do, and 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 that's of course fine. We explore that, but we might look to explore. Uh, other options that that may range in complexity and size, for example, simplistically with most projects, we're generally trying to show people, well, what if we don't do very much? What can mm -hmm. we achieve? What if we do everything, all the bells and whistles? And what if we do something in between? So what's the range of development that we could happen with this property? Uh, the range of costs, of course, and the range of complexities. Um, because quite often, People have come to us uh, wanting to do a certain amount of work and have ended up doing quite a different amount of work. Yeah. Sometimes people have thought they're going to do a lot and have ended up doing not much. And sometimes it's the opposite. We're working uh, on a house at the moment. The client came to us for 
simplistically a new kitchen and some doors out the back and is now doing you know a full renovation and a substantial uh, substantial project yep. they didn't realize their opportunity in a sense and other times people might think oh well we want to do this this and this and we say well you know maybe if we just tweak the existing plan a little bit uh, you can get most of what you want and maybe a substantially uh, reduced uh, cost how do you um how do you deal with when you know cuz a lot of people in society are a bit of time wasters and they want everything for free and mm-hmm. um I know this is probably prevalent in your industry um, where people would get you round and then you're the first cab off the rank. Next thing you know, the person comes in the next day. How do you deal with kind of, because your IP is your ideas, right, and what you can do with the place. How do you kind of protect that a little bit but also give them enough to actually use you, you know what I mean? So because, you know, if you walk in and start dishing out all your ideas and everything you can do to the place and then they get Johnny in the next day or Mary and, um, you know, it's a very hard conflict, right? Yeah, it can be. My, my position is that what people might be looking for initially is, is a conversation, yeah, and I'm ha- very happy to do that. And um, uh, generally speaking, um, like a lot of people in the industry, it, it, it's just a, a means of, of helping people understand what their opportunities can be. And if we give away some of our intellectual property for that, well, so be it. Um, um, in a sense, uh, uh, there's, a lo- as, there's a long way, Twix cup and lip, if you like, there's a long way from, from having an idea to actually executing yeah. it. Um, <laughs> and, and so I'm probably less worried about that. And, and look, t- to be honest, if I gave somebody an idea and they got somebody else to execute it and it turns out fantastic, well, I'm not unhappy about that. That's okay. Um, yeah, because um, the reason I asked that, because a client, I was in, at his house last year and, um, you know, we're going over this, what we're thinking about doing, and he's got you doing a big renovation. And we, he talked to me about three architects, we've got three architects in what they were doing. And he said to me, look, one of them, what, what we went for is the one that actually just opened our mind up and gave us all the IP. The other mm. two kind of stood on the fence and said, oh, you just got to kind of pay us. It costs us 10 grand to talk to us sort of thing and <laughs> kind of yeah. had this really pushy off. And that was just a really interesting learning that, you know, that they were like that because they didn't get the business in the end. Look, I deal with, uh, uh, with, people and, and generally residential architecture. So I'm dealing on a very personal level. So the key um, is, of course, the personal relationship that I have with my clients. So um, being straightforward, clear and open with them is the most important thing I can do. And giving people any initial advice I can, um, I have no problem in doing. So I think that that if, if I'm able to to help somebody make a decision, um, that's a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if they come back to me later on for, for further help with that, that's great. If yeah. they don't, well, that's that's the way it goes. Yeah. We're in a competitive that's market. Right. Of course, people are talking to other people. Um, and often it's a personality thing. Um, I'm not going to be all things to all people. I understand that. Um, so it's always about finding the right fit, the right team. We're trying to work together through this process. Um Highly emotional time it's too. Highly people, emotional. Yeah, it? it can be. Yeah. Um, and and to be honest, uh, uh, the client may be interviewing me, but I'm also interviewing the client. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> no, this isn't a small process. So. No, look, it's mm. not. It can be a long process. I yeah. I can be involved with with projects for yeah. two, three, even four years. Um, yeah. So it's it's a long time. There's a lot of involved. Uh, and both th- sides of the relationship, you know, wanting different things sometimes and having to be in the middle, I imagine. Look, and, and if mm. I don't think I'm suitable for somebody, um, and if I don't think I can help somebody, well, I tell them that mm. and I suggest where they might be able to get help because there's no advantage to anybody. There's no advantage to the client 
there's no advantage to me in, in trying to, to, to work against what somebody else wants. Unfortunately, occasionally you get this, this happening um, and um, uh, it, it's, it can be difficult uh, to deal with. I do have a, a, a client right at the moment who just seems not to want to listen to any advice. And that's the hardest thing for mm. us is that we're trying to provide advice um, and recommendation. And if that's consistently ignored, it, it, it is counterproductive. And of course, mm. ultimately, um, it's not going to be successful for either party. Um, so, so having the right gel of people. So, so when you meet somebody, do you feel that uh, they're somebody that you can work with? Um, and local experience, I imagine? I think local experience can be very, very important. Um, at the end of the day, we're trained as, as designers and, 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 that's, and that's what we could do. And you'd like to think that you could transfer that more or less anywhere. The local experience comes down to understanding more about the don'ts than the do's, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that is, as we started off with, one of the key things that most people don't do. They don't do their homework. They don't understand. So they the don't don'ts. understand what is and isn't likely to happen for their property. And what about the relationships with the builders as well? Building prices, from my understanding, have gone up a lot. Um, and as an architect, you put these great plans together, but then you're at the mercy of what the builders are going to charge. And I imagine that's something with the local knowledge. You've got great relationships with builders that can kind of keep them honest a little bit. Um, I mean, what's your experience of building costs in the last few years in Sydney and how they've been tracking? Stunning. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm astounded. Um, uh, we've got a very particular set of uh, parameters here in, in Sydney. We've got uh, high demand. Um, we've got um, very little in the way of, of trades. There's not a lot of tradespeople, uh, skilled tradespeople, particularly for things like plumbers and electricians. Uh, you can't get uh, a plumber from another country to come here and work here unless they've uh, understood our, our codes and all of that sort of thing, whereas perhaps a painter's painting. Um, so, so certain trades are, are very much in demand um, and our labour costs here are, are very high. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it is um, and that therefore uh, the costs are very high. I have um, many conversations with builders who ring me up saying, I'm just about to give you the price for this project, but I'm embarrassed to submit it. It's, it's very high. Um, uh, the builders aren't necessarily, you know, making huge amounts of cream off the top. It's just the fact that materials are often escalating as as much by 10% per, per annum. So materials wow. are constantly mm. going up. Labor costs are constantly uh, going up. Uh, um, and and that, that, that there's very little available um, in terms of uh, people to do the work. Um, yeah. and, and, of course, the quality ones, the good builders, in demand. are the ones that are in demand. Mm. So when we're talking to people, um, it's very under, uh, important to understand their time frame. So if I've got a client who wants to do uh, you know, a, a home that's going to last them 15 or 20 years and they're, they're very interested in it and they're going to spend quite a lot of money, um, um, very important to understand their time frames. When are we going to get a builder to do this? So, for example, I'm advising people that uh, if they've got a reasonable size job now, they're not starting probably until this time next year, even if we can find a builder today, because they'll be locked in. Um, and, uh, um, and that's the way the market is. So, so um, it's important to understand that. That's why the builders can give big quotes, right? Mm. Because <laughs> between now and next June, I don't need to get any more work. 
And so if anyone comes to me, I can just dish out a, a pretty big quote. I, I probably don't find the good builders do that. Um, uh, what you find with with pricing, and, and that's a, another interesting conversation, is about how things are priced. Um, 10 years or 15 years ago, um, builders, no builders were providing fixed prices. It was cost plus or nothing. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. they weren't even having to price it. Since the GFC, things had changed. Now the expectation from the market is that they, you will get a fixed price. So you will go out to the builders, three or four builders, and they'll all come back with a fixed price and you'll choose one of those. But yeah. your documentation in order to get that fixed price has to be pretty tight, Yes, it, it does. And, yeah. and, and there's, a, there's a, a cost an, in another, that another yeah. interesting pathway mm. that people often don't choose to take and wonder why they aren't getting a very good price or they're getting wildly different mm. prices. Yeah. And it's because they haven't provided enough information. That's a constant uh, issue and one that we're always trying, of course, to avoid. Mm. Um, so the way to, to, to do that is, of course, to be on top of the budget right from the beginning. I mentioned before that we often look at a variety of options. Actually, there's another way. Get a sense of the budget before you buy the property. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And unfortunately, that's sometimes a Hard difficult to thing to understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but what we're trying to do, as I mentioned, by giving people a range of design options is also, of course, to give them a range of price options. Mm. Um, I'd like to, to, to stress that um, I think people may think that more money is better. Well, no. We've worked on projects for $100,000, which has been plenty of money and yep. been a fantastic outcome. Mm. And we've worked on projects for $5 million and we haven't had enough money. Yeah. So it's not the amount of money, it's what you're trying to do with it, Project. of course, that matters. Mm. And of course, it's a little bit human nature to try and get more for less. Of course. Um, which is the, the constant <laughs> battle, if you like. Do you have any rule of thumbs? Like I use lots of, you know, when clients will first call, I'm asking them questions and then I can start to really formulate things. And I've got little kind of equations or things in my head that I can give answers quite quickly that are near enough what it's going to be the right answer. Is Guess, there anything? Guesstimates, you mean? Yeah, I guess, mm. I mean, rough, but I can, I can be pretty close. Educated guesses. Um, yeah. yeah. And I mean, in, in your, yes. so I mean, in terms of, you know, if I've got a two bedroom house and I want to go up a third level, a second level, another third bedroom, second bath, like is in your head, is that like $200,000 or, you yeah. know, is there so, these sort of things? So it's probably not quite as simple as uh, every, uh, every calculation works for every property. It's important to understand the property. Okay, where is it? Is access an issue? Mm. Is the council going to be problematic? Um, how difficult is this building? Is it an easy or a complex one? Then, of course, the amount of spaces and the type of spaces. So um, a bedroom's obviously a lot cheaper to build than, say, a kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so so the, the type of space, the amount of space, and the quality of the space. Mm-hmm. What, are, what is the client's expectation on the quality of space? For example, uh, project homes are a, a certain price for a reason. They're built as cost-effectively as pos- possible, so their method of construction and the quality of that construction uh, reflects that, yeah. um, and that's to be expected. Um, simple things like plasterboard will be 10 millimetre, not 13 millimetre. Yeah. Now, that might not sound a big deal, but it all adds up, of course. In the days an IKEA house, really, isn't it? You know, it's it has to come off the factory and we have to stay... In Within the these parameters to meet the budget, yeah, and that's and okay. To make it, so to if, make it if, efficient, yes, yeah. and and unfortunately, like we touched upon before, uh, often uh, it's about more rather than better. Mm. So yeah. the objective is to get as much as possible for the price, not as good as possible for you the know, price. There's a Eubank actually put out a video some years ago, and it was all about that quest for more, and is it really what we want? I think, and I think um, 
Andrew Daddo actually mm. hosted this. It's a one episode show. Uh, I'll try and find the um, the link for it and put it in the show notes because it's really interesting because it raised all these these questions about are we really going to be happier once we get all this more, 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 more? You know, w- w- does it fill the void? And it was just a really interesting um, case study. Very interesting. There was a good show by Tim Ross who used to be on, oh, yes. on the radio, mm. uh, I think on the ABC or SBS, mm. um, that's yep. well worth watching. Um, that, that, that touches on these issues and, and this is what we're talking about, about how things are constantly changing. But I suppose to go back to your question about, about guesstimating, mm. um, yes, there are some rules of thumb um, and, again, unfortunately sometimes uh, people are shocked at those, <laughs> uh, those guesstimates. Are you talking about the dollar per square metre guesstimate? The dollar per square mm. metre guesstimate. So, for example, um, you know, uh, some people might anticipate that they can build something for, say, $2,000, $2,500 a square metre. I had a client mm-hmm. call me the other day ask, yeah. asking me the dollar per square metre question. Of course, I had to give her a bit of a range and say go and talk to an architect. But, you know, and she, she'd she been researching online and that's the figure she came up with. Yeah. Oh, I Googled it. And that's yeah, what I Googled I'll... it and that's <laughs> what it told me. Now, now, that might be possible, for example, for a project home in Dubbo. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's achievable. But for, you know... Uh, a not terrace in, in Paddington or something? No, it's not. No, six because to eight thousand a square meter for argument's yeah, sake. Could be. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. um, and and so so there are rules of thumbs. Yes. Um, the other the other area that I so so whatever the square meter rate is, for example, commonly around about five thousand to six thousand dollars a square meter. Now this is not top of the range. You could mm. easily spend fifteen or twenty thousand dollars a square meter, um, but but you're not going to get anything much much for less than that. And five years ago, that would have been what. Three and a half? Yeah, three and a half to four. So it's yeah. constantly escalating. It's probably more up to six and yeah. seven and a half now, but 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 this is the realities of building. There's yeah. a trip a trick for buyers or not just buyers but owners. If you are planning a renovation, don't dally, <laughs> get stuck into yeah, it. Absolutely. <laughs> and the other thing to that to, to that point is that, that that's the construction cost. Yep. There's the cost mm. t- for, for the whole project. So so you're going to pay a, a builder to build something, but there's all of the other people involved who you're still going to have to pay. Mm. Possibly an architect, a surveyor, yeah. an engineer, a, a certifier, council fees, all of these other people who are involved in the project will generally uh, come to around about 15 to 20% of the project cost. Yeah. So if you're building a million dollar project, you actually need about 1.15 or 1.2 plus a contingency, I'd say, of about five or maybe even ten percent. Yeah. So a one million dollar project actually needs maybe one point two five to make it happen, and that's some another area people fall drastically short on. They hear the million, they say, "No worries, we'll do it for eight fifty. Yeah. And eight fifty is a long way from one point two five. Yeah. And that's a really interesting nexus for people to get their head around. And you've got to furnish the place, right? Yep. Um, and the other issue with that too is is more often than not, people are, are, are servicing their renovations or their purchases through a bank, through a, another mm. party. So the money sort of almost doesn't feel real. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a paper transaction. It wasn't their hard earned. Yet when they're dealing with, with, with me and surveyors and all these sorts of people, the money's usually coming out of their back pocket, out of mm. their weekly earnings, mm. and, it, and it can hurt. Um, yeah. I mean, so that's, that's important with- to know. Yeah, construction loans is that a lot of banks don't want to do it anymore because they're like they're making so much more money in just doing a normal purchase in Newtown. Then why do I bother with this thing for twelve months, eighteen months? You know, slowly getting an extra couple hundred thousand dollars of debt per you know. So construction loans 
you know, some banks like ING have just pulled out of it. We're not making any money here. So, you know, you've got to be really careful with them because and fixed price building contracts, it astounds me that sometimes clients go to, to builders and they go, well, what's this all about? You know, I don't really understand what a fixed price building contract is. And um, you know, a good idea in yeah. my view. <laughs> Look, one of the things I'd probably also uh, say is, is some advice is, is I'm also quite shocked about how few people really read the contract that they're entering into mm. um, with, with their builder yeah. and understand their obligations under that contract. Mm. Um, there are clear obligations for, for you as the, the, the client to the builder um, in terms of uh, uh, payment times um, um, and responsibilities. Um, and so understanding your contract um, when entering it into something with the builder and understanding the different contracts. There are dozens yeah. of them out there, which is the right one for you or why or why not and getting the right advice again um, is, is, in my opinion, really important. So there's all of these issues that that stretch from right before you might even buy a property right to 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 finishing a property yeah. where seeking the right advice um not necessarily ex expensive uh, sometimes it's even free mm. um um can be extraordinarily beneficial i know i've done this uh, several times with veronica where where there's been a, a perhaps an interest in a property. Um, and we, we've uh, had a review of that. We may have even got some other people down, such as heritage experts or planning experts, to give an, a, a comment and opinion so that the, the client does know what they're up against. Now, they might be fine with that. And the, that great, it's a tick, off we go. Yes, we want this property. and But quite often it's a, it's a no, we're yeah. not going to get what we want. Um, and, and that's uh, extraordinarily valuable information, yeah. often for free. To the client, yeah, contracts there are just that's. A, I think that's a we need definitely need to make sure that because I mean, if you're signing a phone contract right with Optus for two years, the worst thing that could happen <laughs> is not that bad, right? And so you just quickly sign it. But when you're signing a building contract for a million dollars, or you're buying a house for two million dollars, you know who if you aren't trained to read that contract and you aren't you're looking at what what, what even if you do read it, you're usually thinking what's in this contract that could affect me negatively. But you haven't thought about what could I put in the contract to help me, to protect me. So a builder is not going to say, well, if we don't finish this by June next year, you, we can charge you a penalty. Um, but if you speak to a builder, a, a contract kind of specialist, they may say, well, put a clause in there that has a penalty if they're late or they're slow or, you know, they're, you know what I mean? And so that's a lot of thing with contracts is they're written to protect the person that's giving you the contract. Yes. They're not yet. And so people. So the key is to find a contract that's, that's, reasonably fairly balanced between both parties. Yeah. Some contracts are more in favour of builders, for example. Um, I'd probably say not many contracts are in favour of, uh, of, of the client, but, but you're absolutely right. Understanding the, the terms and conditions of the contract is important. Um, uh, whether or not to alter a contract is always a contentious uh, issue because if you're altering it, um, the other parties, well, why are you altering it? And if you're altering this bit, maybe I'll alter that bit. So, so we generally tend to recommend people find a contract that they feel is, is fairly balanced between, between the parties, but understanding those terms and conditions is vital and doing your due diligence as with everything and getting legal advice if you need it. Mm. And I'd suggest everybody needs it is important and, and that might not be a big deal but like you mentioned uh, very early on people do tend to want to stick their heads in the sand yeah, about yeah. some of these issues and just pretend it's all going to go away and we'll worry about it later should be right mate 
Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Now, Tom, have you brought us an example of a property dumbo? Somebody's made a Look, mistake. Look, we, we, uh, <laughs> we put this out in the office and we came up with a few. The amount of people who buy appliances because they're on sale and then we have to design around them is <laughs> astounding. <laughs> no. um, we ask, we say, go and have a look and see what you can buy and they come back and we, we bought it. Oh, no. um, so then we're stuck or they've got a handling fee. People who uh, have... Uh, Certain furniture that, that they insist we design their entire new house around is another one that we find a little bit uh, unnerving. That, <laughs> that couch that you bought 10 years ago could probably go. We're yeah. spending a million dollars on your house. <laughs> Maybe you could think about a new... Uh, Isn't it normally a, new... a dining table that's an issue though? <laughs> People seem to have this it's thing about always grandma's side cabinet yes. yeah, <laughs> that doesn't it at all. But look, in all seriousness, the key thing that I unfortunately see is people just buying the wrong property mm. for them. It might be the right property for somebody else, right. but not doing their homework yep. enough. We're talking about people in Sydney now investing multiple millions of dollars. If you were going to put $2 million in shares, you'd do a little bit of homework mm. about what you were doing. Mm. But people seem to, like you say, it'll be right, mate. You know, they're desperate to get into the market. They'll almost, you can smell that desperation sometimes. Ooh. They just want something. Yeah. And that I think is the dumbest mistake that you could make because it's a very big risk. Mm. And we're talking about lots of money here. Like you mentioned, okay, the, the, Optus, the Optus mistake might not be too costly, but this one could be very costly. Yeah. Mm. I mean, because the transactional costs plus just the strain on your actual stress levels and your relationship and, and all the other consequences of actually buying the wrong property, buying the wrong property means you live with regret. Yeah. And that's not a comfortable place for anybody, particularly if you're in a couple where one blames the other. Yes. <laughs> and and um, like you mentioned with the, the, the costs to get out of it mm. um, being, you know, well over $100,000 for nearly every property nowadays, yeah. it's an expense that a lot of people might not be able to afford. And then to buy another and if you do need to renovate, there's your renovation budget gone. Yep. Mm. And you're just kind of throwing mud on mud, aren't you really? You oh, know, you're horrible. just constantly, it's really sad. you can't really unwind it. Um, and well, you so can, you, you, but it's going to cost a heap and you've got to have to admit well, you've made mistakes. Mm. And, and so you naturally tell yourself, oh, I don't want to lose money on this. Mm. And, and I, and I, you know, and then also it's the social pressure of you've bought it, you know, and I have to tell your friends and tell your family that you bought the wrong house and you should have bought a different one. And then you go to an architect and you say, you know, can we gloss this up to make it better? You can kind of see how the story just keeps unfolding. It can, it, it can do. And I, <clears throat> excuse me, I know Veronica and I have, have touched on this is that sometimes though cutting your losses as quickly as mm. possible may be yeah. the best thing. So yeah. if, if a property isn't going to work for you with the parameters that you want, maybe uh, cutting your losses mm. uh, as soon as possible is the best outcome for you. Here's an analogy. I was lying in bed this morning, as I often do, because I wake up too early. Quite often people come to us, they've found a property they're interested in buying, and we offer a service called an evaluation and negotiation service. And, and part of that evaluation is really assessing, well, is it a good property on its own merits, but B, does it suit their needs? And will it do and will it be what mm. they hope and want it will be? And obviously what they should pay for it, et cetera, et cetera. Now, sometimes we get people come to us, you know, they might have been listening to the podcast, for instance, but their partner hasn't been. And they don't think you should pay someone to do what you can do 
for yourself. And I hear stories after the event quite often. I wish we got you in to help us because we wouldn't have bought it if you did. And I knew and there was a gut feeling that we shouldn't be buying this property, but my partner wanted to buy it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I keep thinking the analogy of the groom or the bride that really doesn't want to get married. And the pain of avoiding and pulling out before the wedding or even at the altar, that pain and the whole idea of pulling the pin and the shame and embarrassment, humiliation, all that sort of stuff. And so rather than face that, they go ahead and get married. And it's like it, they're not going to be happy. They're going to be miserable and they're it's going to blow up and it's going to be worse. Mm. And it's the same when you actually have something niggling in the back of your head, I'm not really sure or I'm telling myself a story that this is going to be the perfect property, but that's because I'm refusing to listen to the sort of logical voices and so maybe some other rational voices that are going on in your head. There's often that conflict in people's heads when they're going towards Look, some transaction is, like there this. There is and there's that conflict throughout maybe even a renovation process of one person wants one thing and one mm. person wants another. And again, the value in talking to somebody with experience is, I think, very important. Yeah. I know, Veronica, you and I have, have the same position that, that, that our role is often to give people the best advice we can. It might not be what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and probably if it's what they don't want to hear, it's the best advice we could give yeah. them. Um, whether they listen to that or not, of course, ultimately is up to them. But I think being able to, to seek out people who can help you and being able to listen to the advice of people who've got experience in areas is very important. We are becoming more mature about these things um and i think that's that's partly because of the pressures of things like property prices are Mm -hmm. having but it's also through mediums like this where it's easier now to perhaps get more of an understanding about what's out there and what advice is there and to listen to a range of advices i don't suggest that that my opinion is the only opinion or that I'm always uh, giving you the perfect answer. But I do think if you seek a range of advice um, so that you can make an informed and educated decision about whatever it is you're doing, that you're a long way down the path to avoiding any mistakes. Yeah, I mean, I think this comes down to it. It's it's weird. It's a it's a thing that was a behavioural bias that we've got is that we we just undervalue other professionals. And you know, if someone said to you, you know, and when someone values what they do themselves and their own knowledge, and they think they're valuable, then they start to value others because they think, well, everything I've learned, everything I've become this expert in this space. How could I possibly get that amount of knowledge in an area that I'd have no idea? I can't just read a couple of books. And you know, that is a you know quote. I think it is something like you. You don't want to be a, a man or a woman um, that knows the price of everything but the value, value of, of nothing. nothing. And <laughs> I think that's a really powerful thing to really kind of sit on. And yeah, yeah it's a- and one of the things I, I often like to discuss uh, with people I'm talking to is, is what, what, what do you do? What's your professional experience or what do you do for a job? Because I'm quite sure I can't do it. I can't, mm. I can't be a, yeah. a, a, a dentist or a bus driver or, or whatever it might be. I don't have the experience to do that. So, so why do you think you have the experience to understand the complexities of, of all of, of all of these issues? Um, you don't. Um, and, and you, you <laughs> probably, probably should. Probably television yeah. shows. <laughs> Un- unfortunately. Yes. But I mean, I think that those, not to belittle those things, I think they help to, um, to, to educate people, which yeah, is a really right. positive and powerful but thing. But there's that little bit of knowledge mm, that's be a dangerous. dangerous thing. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and, and that's what this podcast is about, is digging deeper and exposing how much more knowledge 
is out there and really where to go to get it. So, look, mm. Tom, thank you so much for been your time. Pleasure. It's been mm. very informative. Now, Tom, if it, well, if anybody wants to get in touch with Tom, he's, on, he's available via his website, which is twarchitects.com.au. Yes. We're also going to put the link in the show notes. And also Tom has given us some other links of resources for buyers who are thinking of buying to renovate. There are there are some really straightforward and um, quick resources out there. Um, to give it credit, the New South Wales government's planning portal can, can be a very useful tool to understand what can and can't ha- happen on your property and, and the basic guidelines. And there's other industry bodies, such as I'm an, a member of the Institute of Architects. They have some in, lots of information about uh, working with professionals and, and the mm. whole process. So educating yourself is important. And But like you point out, knowing where you should stop and maybe seek further advice is also very important. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thanks, Tom. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Cheers. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is? Well, this whole conversation with Tom has really got me thinking about how can buyers make better decisions when they're buying their property, particularly if they're expecting to renovate. Now, Tom mentioned something that we do routinely, and that is we get an architect to give advice before we start all the other due diligence. And that's something that I recommend any buyer does if they're thinking about renovating. So what you can do there, you can Google basically, and I go in and find architects that actually specialise in that local council area. You can even ring the council, ask to speak to the duty planner and ask if they'll tell you some of the names of the architects that submit a lot of plans in that area. So you want somebody who has good local knowledge and a good understanding of what's possible with that particular council. But beyond that, Tom mentioned one thing that really pricked up my ears and that is the possibility of undercapitalizing. As he said, most people are really focused and worried about overcapitalizing. But what actually can happen is that people undercapitalize. And what that means is that they don't spend enough. They don't do the appropriate level of renovation that that particular property warrants and the area warrants. So you really do need to get out there and understand what local buyers look for in a renovated property. And that's very, very important. If you under-renovate a property, you are going to turn it into an underperforming asset. So you've got to get the balance right. So that's our boot camp for today is really focusing on that idea of undercapitalization and the risk that that poses and researching and getting out there and understanding the potential market that you would be selling into should you be buying and flipping in that area. Now, please join us next episode when I interview Lynette Malcolm. And I say I because Chris, unfortunately, wasn't able to join us. Lynette is a sales agent from Sydney's Upper North Shore. And we had a really, really fascinating and interesting chat about the dynamics of that market and also how buyers make very emotional decisions around property and the sorts of things they should probably be a bit more aware of before buying. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Risk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. 
If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.